Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. This week is a special encore episode of the program, and I am happy to replay my interview from January or February 2022 with Judd Apatow. Judd, as you probably know, is a comedic cinema impresario who's accomplished more and contributed more to the world of funny movies than maybe anybody living today. And since Norman Lear just died, he's like in the living pantheon of comedic film and television people. Consider his comedic oeuvre. That's right. I said oeuvre. Oh, I bet O-E-U-V-R-E. I think I can even spell it. Yeah. It's like hors d'oeuvres, but it's a collection of uh, work that you've done. Consider his oeuvre. He has written, produced, directed, or some combination thereof of the following films. The following films include. 40-Year-Old Virgin, Anchorman, Funny People, The Big Sick, Trainwreck, This Is 40, Bridesmaids, Pineapple Express, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Superbad, Knocked Up, Talladega Nights, The Larry Sanders Show, and the 2004 MTV Movie Awards. Wait, what? Yeah. So obviously I was on his IMDb and I was just writing a bunch of stuff down. But think about that. That's like a dozen and a half, almost two dozen of the funniest, most iconic movies of the last 20 years. And Judd had a major role in bringing them to life. He's got a couple of new movies that are out right now. Bob and Don, A Love Story, which is a short documentary about Bob Newhart and Don Rickles and their friendship. And then he's got another feature-length film called Please Don't Destroy the Treasure of Foggy Mountain that is in cinemas and or streaming now. In this conversation, in which he was graciously present and generous with his stories and insights into his life, career, and friendships, We talk about his early days in comedy and living with Adam Sandler, why he didn't worry too much about money as a young comedian, how failure prepared him to handle success, and how to be creative during a pandemic. Not that that's ever going to happen again. Again, just love this conversation with Judd. Before we jump to it, I want to remind you all that I've got tickets for sale in the following markets that you can find by clicking on links in the show notes. I'll be at Roscoe's Comedy Club in Austin, Texas on January 11th. I'll be at Cobb's Comedy Club, the legendary Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco, California, which is an intellectual kind of town on February 22nd. I will be in Nashville, Tennessee on February 28th at Zany's. Great club, that Zany's. Love that stage. Best green room in the country. Candy bars, beers, water, moisturizer. The green room's got everything. You'd love it. So check it out at the link in the show notes. You can always go to paulollinger.com, find out more, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Hey, enjoy this conversation with Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow, welcome to Crazy Money. It's good to be here. I say welcome, but we're sitting in your incredible screening room in your new Mm -hmm. offices. How's building a new office during COVID? I should say welcome to you. Yes. In my house. Well, we worked on these offices for two years, and the entire point of it was to be able to edit everything here, do multiple productions create perfect spaces for writing, just have every space be the thing that would make you more creative. And then the pandemic hit, and everything about this is now wrong. <laughs> Did nothing but a place where you would catch a disease. Because it was, it was about having a lot of people in rooms, comfortable rooms together, right, right. you know, creating. So hopefully we'll be allowed to do it. But you're here now, and you can tell it's like built for whatever, 50 people, 100 people, yeah. and I have a staff of four. And they're really separated uh, on different sides of the building. So the creative hive is is a uh, remote hive now. Yeah, we don't know when we're allowed to be around each other. We're in a holding pattern. But for now, it's just cavernous 
and enormous, and I can't tell if that's exciting or sad, but it does feel like a place that wants to be filled. So that was really the point of it, that this would create ideas. I just kept thinking, I want a space that you would walk in and go, I need to think of something. Yeah. With the company around here, I would think the pressure to create is could be pretty amazing. Yes. Pretty awesome. What did you learn about business and creativity and getting things done over the past two years? I think when it started, I, you know, the, for the first month, I was just the one running around the house yelling at everyone for not being safe enough. Right. So I would just scream at my family, I'm the one who dies. <laughs> <laughs> Statistically speaking, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was the first month. And then there was a moment where I thought, I think I'm going to get either healthier or really unhealthy right now. I'm either going to gain a lot of weight and eat garbage, or I'm going to go the other way, and there will be no middle. And so I just started walking. And I never walked ever. I never liked to hike. When people would say take a walk, I would be like, what are you talking about? You just walk? Why do you walk? <laughs> I would always hear about Lorne Michaels taking a noonday walk in Central Park for an hour. And I would think, he walked for an hour? Why? And I had just taken a hike right before the pandemic started and had this great hike with Jim Carrey and some friends. And I didn't realize that there was this incredibly gorgeous view in Santa Monica that felt like Hawaii at the top of Mandeville Canyon. And so I was somewhat primed to understand. And then I just started walking to the ocean every morning. It'd take me 45 minutes and then walking back. And that's what I did the entire pandemic and continue to do. Is that helpful from a creative standpoint? Do you get ideas worked out in your head or do you just zen out or what does it do for you? Well, in the beginning, it was just to not lose my mind. (laughs) There was no intention of thinking about work. It was just, I need to not get fat. Yeah, I need to move, and slowly I realize, okay, just being in nature is calming me down. I didn't want to be super stressed out the whole pandemic, just worried about you know my heart, my health. How do I calm down? And then after four months of that, one day I was with my friend Brent Forrester, who's a great writer from The Office and The Simpsons, and he worked with us at the Ben Stiller Show and on Love, and I said, maybe we should think of stuff. and we started as a as a just an exercise outlining things so we outlined an animated movie just for the hell of it let's just start talking about this idea and see if we can figure it out and we would walk almost every day for an hour and a half and then on the walk i started talking about the nba bubble it just made me laugh that there were all these basketball players stuck in a hotel and i thought oh that's kind of a a funny setting for something. That sounds like, you know, Lord of the Flies in some respects. Because <laughs> there was that guy who left the bubble to go to a funeral, and then while he was out, he he got chicken wings at a strip club, and he got in a lot <laughs> of trouble. One, as one does. And I thought, well, there must, that must be a real pressure cooker. So I started thinking about that, and then one day I thought, well, maybe... The Jurassic Park bubble I keep hearing about, that they're stuck in England and they keep having shutdowns. And maybe there's a movie in actors stuck in a hotel trying to finish a movie. So we started talking about that on the walk, and I would talk about it with my wife, Leslie, who's always the funniest to talk about things with and kick things around with. And then slowly there was an 
you know, at the beginning of an outline. So I guess I realized that having a really clear head was good for me because usually the phone rings all day long and you have 50 meetings. And when no one needs anything from you and you just take a walk, you get all these creative ideas and it makes you realize, oh, I haven't really protected my creative time. Mm. You know, if you leave me alone and I don't answer any phones and I just meander, I'll actually think of the great idea, but I might not if I have a big busy day in the office. You started as a purely creative person and now you're a producer, business person, investor, all this kind of stuff. How do you balance how much time you spend creating versus managing and financing and meeting and hiring and all that stuff? It's just always a shit show. (laughs) (laughs) It, It never makes sense. It has its own flow. Like now when I look at the last 20 years, I could see what I was doing for 20 years. Oh, I... In retrospect. In retrospect. Oh, that year was busy. That year, nothing happened. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's an ongoing struggle to figure out when to be creative, how much time to be creative, how much time to sit with other people and help them with their stuff, how much time to promote things, to run the business. The simplest version should be don't do anything other than write till lunch. That's right. probably the smartest way to do it. But I'm one of those people that think of thinks of ideas all day long. So no matter what's happening, it might pop into my head. But maybe I'm not doing it correctly because the downtime taught me how much more I could get done mm. when I, I'm not packed with things to do. So it is a bit of a mess. Even now, I think, okay, just tell your assistant, no meetings till 2 o'clock. But then... I'll just go, but I want to have breakfast. I'm going to go have breakfast with my friend at 10 till noon, and then I do nothing. So usually what happens is you meander, and then one day you have an idea, and then you have to create a timetable where someone expects it. Mm. And then you wipe the calendar clean and go, I got to write this script because I told him it would be done in a month. As a forcing function because Netflix or HBO or whoever has has a deadline to meet. You said write until noon. I found when I was younger I could write at midnight, but now that I'm a middle-aged man, my brain works from 5 a.m. until 11 and then nothing for the rest of the day. Me too. I used to sit home when I was young and single, and I would sleep till 11 or 12. This is a writing schedule, by the way. Yeah. Sleep till 11 or 12, get up, have lunch, watch like a season of road rules or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Some MTV show uh, where everyone's stuck in a house. And then around 4 o'clock, my mind would wake up, and I would slowly move to the office and then write till midnight yeah. and eat and whatever else I was doing. But it would take me six hours of nothingness to feel the moment where my brain went, I'm ready. Yeah, And now you have to do that with a schedule that says... That has to happen at 9 o'clock. You have no choice. You don't have six hours of runway to get in the mood to do it, and that is really hard. But, you know, one of my mentors is David Milch, and he always said that you really should try to write every day at the same time. And like a a Buddhist monk who hits the bell, your mind will know, oh, this is the time we do it. And it will naturally kick into the gear. That's interesting. Mike Carano, let's go back in time. Mike Carano is our mutual friend. He is the editor and producer of the Crazy Money podcast, the person who made me start to do it. For that, I'm very grateful. 
Tell me where you first remember meeting Mike Carano. Well, I met Mike when he was working at the San Diego Improv. I do not know what his official job was. <laughs> he was seemed to be in a position of some mid-level of power. The Dave Becky, uh, the manager, was uh, the manager of the Improv at that time. And what was your position? I was assistant. Okay, so was, oh, Becky was the man, and now he's one of the most powerful Managers, people in comedy. Yeah. We would go down there, and it was an incredible club. Mm -hmm. It was how many seats, Mike? Two twelve in the beginning, and three hundred at the end. Yeah. So, in the beginning, it was just the perfect size. There are those rooms like the Ice House; mm -hmm. they're just built for comedy. And the laughs bang around. The crowds are great. It was always packed. It was the the room you dreamed that you were good enough to get booked in. But they would have an open mic night. Mm -hmm. And so as a young person, if you wanted to drive two and a half hours or three and a half when traffic hit, you could get off your ass and try to go to certain nights of the week where they would let people perform who weren't the headliner on the weekend. And so somehow I must have connected through the improv to get Dave to allow me on stage before I was really a good comic. Right. And maybe they were potluck nights with... Younger comics. Is that what you sort would say? Of, yeah. But you always you used to bring people down as well. Like when I took over that club, you would bring like Adam and Todd Glass and stuff, and we had fun shows. Yeah, it, it was very early on. Adam was established because he was on MTV and he was on remote control. So he had a little bit of a, a name. Minimal, but it was pre-Saturday Night Live. And I remember I said to, to Dave and Mike, can I bring Adam down to headline... Maybe it was a you know a Monday night or a yeah. Tuesday night. It wasn't the weekend, and so we came down and Adam bombed so hard for an hour. <laughs> the crowd didn't know him, didn't like him. Absolutely. Adam's act was very surreal, and Adam got frustrated. He just put his back against the brick wall and just ran the act. Didn't like perform it. Just annoyed <laughs> that they didn't like him at all. And then eventually I got accepted to work at the improv. Right. And so in the beginning, you're the MC, mm -hmm. which I always enjoyed doing. And I did that at the improv in LA where I would MC from eight till one thirty in the morning, like four or five nights a week for years. But you get to meet everyone and you learn a lot by watching everyone. And then you become the middle after that, which is like you do 25 or 30 minutes before the headliner. I never was a headliner at the club. And it was just, just the great place to, to do stand up. And then it got bigger. And I never understood why it closed because it always seemed to be packed. But it was a magical time. And Mike and Dave were so nice to me and Adam and Todd Glass and Doug Benson. You know, they were friendly, safe spaces where you weren't really good yet, but certain people knew you would be good. And you could feel that they were emotionally betting on you. There was a guy named Drew Casper who ran the improv at the Valley Hilton in Sherman Oaks. They just put a room in the conference room. I've done those gigs before. Right? And I would show up every night. I wasn't accepted at the improv, and he just said, hang out. If someone doesn't show up, I'll put you on. And I would just go there every night, and then people wouldn't show up, or he'd put me on at the end. And you just felt like, oh, he believes in me. I just said Drew Casper. It's not Drew Casper. Joe Drew. Yeah. Drew Casper was my, my teacher. <laughs> Intro to film at USC in 1985. That's what happens to the brain at this age. <laughs> that's a real inversion. And that's what Dave and Mike were. They were the guys that looked at you like, we know you're good and we're smart. And it made you believe in yourself. You just need time. So Mike has told me over the years stories about you. And one of the things that 
that I've always remember him saying is that after the show, all the other guys would go out and get beers, and you'd go back to your apartment and write. Well, mainly I was eating fettuccine Alfredo <laughs> late at night. I don't know if I was going home to write. I was writing during the day, and I was trying to put in extra effort. I remember I worked with Larry Miller at the Improv in Irvine, and he just said, you know, Judd, you know, Judd, nobody writes. That's what he said. Like, that's how he talked. Nobody writes, Judd. You know, you get up in the morning, it's like a job. You sit at a desk. If you put in an hour a day, you will have 10 new minutes a week. And yeah. no one does it, Judd. Yeah. No one does it. And it hit me. He's like, it's a job. Why wouldn't you put some time into it other than on stage? And that really, it really landed for me. I don't think I still did it right. much. I was writing sketches and trying to write screenplays. I never really sat and thoughtfully wrote stand-up back then. I don't think I was very good, and I didn't put the time into it. I just was drifting towards, oh, what's, how do you write a TV pilot? Mm. And I also didn't like to party, so I was never drinking or doing drugs or trying to meet women or anything. I was, I was going home because I was really nervous about paying my rent. Right. My parents both had financial problems. And I really felt this heat on, on my ass, like, you better figure this out because you have no options. Did you have a vision for what success looked like in the entertainment business? Did you think you're like, comedy is a good way to get into writing scripts? Or did it all just sort of, you did comedy, you heard about television pilots, you heard about movie scripts, you, you heard about three-act structure, all that kind of stuff, and then you just moved toward it? Or was there a big picture vision that you had from an earlier age? I really was just so dumb as a young person. <laughs> I, they, I had no vision whatsoever. Right. I just wanted to be Bill Maher. Right. I wanted to be Jerry Seinfeld. But you had, expo- you, had ver- you had exposure, deep exposure to comics at a very young age, right? Yeah, I would interview comics in high school, but I look back on it now and I do think, what were you thinking? What did you think was going to happen? Because I loved stand-up so much, and I was so afraid to admit to anyone that I wanted to do it. And I, I finally worked up the nerve at the end of my senior year of high school. And I was awful, but I think I thought I had potential. Mm-hmm. And then I went to USC, and I started putting on shows at USC, but mainly as an excuse to to get on stage and get some credibility. I couldn't get in at any club. Mm-hmm. I'd only performed like three times mm-hmm. at that point. And I didn't think I'm going to be a star. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be Bill Murray or Eddie Murphy. I think on some level deep, I wish that would happen. Oh, man, Eddie Murphy became a big star in his mid-20s. I'm 17 now. I can become a big star by the time I'm 24. <laughs> like, like There was like an irrational belief that something might happen. People had said to me, it takes seven years to develop your character. So that number was always in my mind. I had a lot of patience. I didn't think I was going to be a success at 18, 19, 20. Yeah. I thought it was seven years, and it really helped me that I wasn't in a rush. I didn't feel like anything was being denied to me as a young person. But I didn't think I'm going to direct movies or write movies. Yeah. I literally thought, is there any way I could be on that stage for 15 minutes where it goes well? <laughs> <laughs> and everything beyond that was just like, I guess you could write a script. But I wasn't, you know, I didn't watch movies to learn how to make movies as a kid. So I didn't ever pay attention to cinematography or story structure. Then I went to USC Cinema School only because there was no stand-up major. That's the only reason why I took screenwriting. And then slowly I realized, oh, my friends need writing help. I think I learned how to do some of that. Mm. And then we would write pilots or sketches 
And then I realized, I think people like me more when I do this than when I do stand-up. So I just felt the gravitational pull. I did plays in high school, and I thought acting is the most fun I've ever had doing anything. But that's not a real job. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm from a big Catholic family, conservative, Depression-era dad. Mm -hmm. It was always like, well, you're going to go to college, and you're going to get a job. You're going to get a real job. Was the entertainment business, did the uncertainty and lack of predictable career path intimidate you, or were you just like, I'll figure it out? It really is true that if it paid like 12 grand a year for the rest of my life, I would have done it. Right. There was no financial thought. I did have a thought as a kid, which was no one's doing this, so I think there are jobs here. <laughs> because so was, people would interpret that the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> like in the 70s and the early 80s, right before that comedy seemed to explode, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, there's probably about 100, 100, maybe 200 comics in the country, about 300 million people. Mm-hmm. So they probably need more. That's hilarious. Right? And, and, and it made me feel like it's possible to do it. I didn't know at what level. But I can get in, and, and I was watching comedians. I was a busboy and a dishwasher at a comedy club, and I always watched and thought, I think I could do I'm this. as good as that guy. Yeah, they seem like me. Yeah. And I met people when I did interviews like Paul Reiser and Seinfeld, and they were humans, and they talked a little bit like me. Like, this isn't something that is so out of the realm of possibility, but it really wasn't for money or career. It really was. I loved it so much. I just didn't care. I wanted to eat. I wanted, but I never thought, oh, you can make a lot of money doing this. I'm not even talking about a lot of money. I'm talking about like, can you pay your rent? Can you, you know, buy your groceries with a career in comedy? Because that is not the case for probably 99.5% of people who describe themselves as comedians. Well, when I lived with Adam, my rent was $425. Right. And Adam's was $475 because he had a bathroom (laughs) in his room (laughs) and I had to use the guest bathroom. So I felt like the bar of like life was fifteen hundred bucks a month to live, and so I would do stand up at the Improv, and I would make on a good week two hundred bucks. I worked for Comic Relief as a PA and mm-hmm. just a helper. For that, I got I think two hundred dollars for years, and then it finally got raised to four hundred dollars. Right there, I'm like, all right, so that's enough for me to live. I, you know, that's a uh, a few thousand dollars a month. Sure. And then slowly I realized that comedians would buy jokes. And no other comedians wanted to sell anyone jokes because everyone wanted to be a star. But I quietly thought, maybe I'm not going to be a star. Mm-hmm. So I'll write jokes for Taylor Negron or George Wallace. And they'd give you 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And then that turned into doing it for Tom Arnold and then Roseanne. And then that became real money for the first time. So you kept your lifestyle commensurate to your income or income drove what was possible from a consumption standpoint. Oh, I lived on my grandmother's floor for (laughs) the first year or so. Yeah. And then when I, then I moved in with Adam and then I, then Adam got Saturday night live and disappeared. Then I was like alone in this apartment. He kept paying rent. I'm just alone in this apartment. It was (laughs) sad. And he's on SNL and I'm just depressed that nothing's happening for me. And then, you know, we created the Ben Stiller show. And so that was the first, significant salary I had, and then I was able to get my own apartment down the street in the valley. It still wasn't an expensive apartment. 
I've heard you say in another interview, and you just made a reference to this, that you were doing comedy and you were good enough at it. And you were getting work, you were getting some TV work. But you said, well, I'm doing comedy and I'm looking, I'm standing next to Adam Sandler. You sort of inferred that he's a genius and you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the journey to finding what you're best at? Because clearly you've become extraordinarily successful in film and TV production. How did you find your journey from adequate comedian to impresario in the video production world? I feel like emotionally I've always been like seven years behind everybody. So (laughs) even at 17, I was just so bad. Like I see comedians now who are 19 or 20. They're incredible. And I was just so awful. But I must have had some charisma because I was getting work. And I, I probably had a few jokes where it showed some potential. I don't know really how I sensed it, but it was a weird moment in show business, the like late 80s, early 90s, because there were people floating around, and you don't feel it as much right now, and I'm not sure why, where there'd be people at the clubs, and they're doing the same job you're doing, but everyone knew, that's the next guy, that's the next woman. Like, you'd see Sandler, and he wasn't a star, and we all were like, he's Eddie Murphy. And he'd just be at the bar hanging out. He'd be making you laugh harder than most people hanging around. Oh, and Ellen DeGeneres was there. And there was this sense like, yeah, something happened in there. And there was a lot of it. Jim Carrey was doing sets. Right. And we were all like, I think he might be the funniest person I've ever seen. And so as a young comedian, that was exciting. But also I thought, I really don't think I can do what they're doing. (laughs) And I don't think I'm charismatic in that way, and I don't think I'm inventive in that way. I might be smart, and I can write for them. I could sit with Jim and write jokes for him and write really good ones and add them too, but I'm not that. And I've said it before, but it, it really is how I felt. It's like if you're starting a band and your roommate was Bono. And it would be a part of you that would be like, I'm not Bono. Oh, you said you said you're the alarm, right? Or exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the alarm. They're good. Yeah. I'm big country. Yeah. Uh, oh, also great. Also great. Um, and so I would write for them. And then I remember writing something for Jim. He did a tribute to Steven Spielberg. So they're doing an AFI tribute to Steven Spielberg. And Jim's going to go. And he doesn't know if they're going to ask him to speak or not. He didn't really understand how it worked. And he said, could you write something for me? So I wrote a a whole speech where Jim listed every Spielberg movie that he wasn't cast in <laughs> and complained and, and, and then did like a little piece of what he could have done. And then Jim liked it so much, he asked if he could speak on the special. And then he murdered in front of everyone in Hollywood because it was Spielberg, so everyone was there. And it was a big moment for Jim because at the time he was just Ace Ventura. Right. And I think him demolishing in front of every head of every studio, every big person in the business <laughs> was very meaningful. But I took it like I had also killed in that moment. But I never thought, and I could have performed that. Mm. So I started getting more confidence writing for people who had the courage to do these things. If I were watching a film and I couldn't see the credits, how would I know that I'm watching a Judd Apatow film? I'm not sure. I know that People have said, for most creative people and directors especially, they think they're doing things that are all very different from each other, but they're all kind of the same. <laughs> and I've, I've, I haven't fought that very hard, because even when you think you did something really different, it still feels totally like you. And I know that in my movies, I'm trying to make people feel like they can be better. 
So they're usually people making terrible mistakes who learn some kind of lesson. They take a beating. You know, Shanling and John Cassavetes were big inspirations because they said that everything is an obstacle to love. That all stories are about love and the obstacles to connection. And that's what I think is in there. You know, immature people usually who need something to happen for them to make an adjustment to be more evolved and more loving to themselves, to other people. Money comes up in your films here and there. Mm -hmm. And funny people, it's the subtext of the Mm -hmm. film. Here's Adam Sandler. He's got more than he ever dreamed of. He goes from being uh, the kind of startup comedian that you were talking about earlier to becoming wildly wealthy, wildly famous, and yet he's he's miserable as a human being. Did you want to send a message about money and fame as part of that film? I think at that time I was thinking about that a lot. You know, I wrote that movie when my mom was sick. She later died of ovarian cancer, and... It was just in my mind, you know, well, you know, what is the point of any of this? What, you know, what, wh- why am I making things? What have I learned? Am I happy? I was just assessing my own behavior in just the turmoil of watching my mom struggle and be sick, you know, for four or five years. And money certainly was a part of that. Workaholism, how much time do you put into your work versus friendships, connections, your family, and so the idea of somebody who, in my head, was like a Rodney Dangerfield type, you know, a big movie star, but he's alone in the big house. He never figured out how to have a family, how to have children or just solid relationships or solid friendships. He doesn't really have any friends. Mm-hmm. He's got bandmates that he has to pay to come <laughs> yes. play with them. He's got John Bryan yeah, who has to come over and the drummer for Bill Withers. But so that's what, you know, I was explore. And Adam had gone through some of that at the same time, so we would talk about that. And you have your friends that you started with where you can say to each other, are you happy? How are you doing? And those were a lot of the ideas that you know were on our minds at the time. And so the big house was a, a symbol of the big empty house with the housekeeper, and it's just you living in that house. And when you get sick, you have no one to call. Right. There's no one even to go to the appointments with you, which is something that Gary Shanling had said to me. He was alive then, but he told me once that he got really, really sick and had to have surgery, and he's like, and no one was there. Ugh. Because he, only one person in his family he spoke to, his cousin Mike, who's a great guy but lives in Arizona, and he had to go through it alone, and finally he called our friend Chris Henchy, who came to the hospital, but I remember it was the first time Gary really sounded like, oh, I've, you know, I wish there was someone here to love me, to take care of me. And he also said, he's like, and I'm so sick and I have to make decisions about what to do with my health. And I'm, I'm all stoned on all this medication because I just had surgery and I need, you know, somebody to support me here. And I think that's part of what Funny People was about. We always said it's about someone who really has a hard time learning from a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. So he gets sick, he realizes what's truly important, he gets better, instantly goes back to what a jerk he was, (laughs) and then has to take a second beating. And it was inspired by some articles we read about executives and some executives in our business who talked about having had cancer and near-death experiences and we would say, but they're not cool now. 
and so that was something that we thought was interesting, how ingrained your bad habits are and your bad ways of behaving are. And so at the end of the movie, all that Adam really does is he writes some jokes for Seth's character. Mm-hmm. Who's the up-and-coming comedian. Yeah. and it goes from open micer to... Advances pretty quickly in the yeah. movie, but you only had 90 minutes, right? Exactly. And it's a, so it's about, oh. well, two hours and 15 yeah, minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's, but it was just about him losing his selfishness and his right. self-involvement. And so I didn't really think that much about money. I thought more of it about ego. Right. When you guys, as you started to become successful, you make a lot of money, start getting a lot of attention, how did you manage your egos? Was it tempting to believe all the nice things people tell you about yourself because you're becoming a person of import and notoriety? I mean, for me, a lot of the early work I did didn't succeed. So it was stuff that people liked, but none of it... Critically, they liked it. Yeah, and and the people who saw it liked it. So Heavyweights was the first movie we did, and it didn't do well in the box office, but for some reason, people still like it now. People still talk about it as much now as then. And Cable Guy was considered something that didn't do well but then held up over time. Because mm-hmm. it was too dark? Yeah, because it was dark, and Jim wasn't acting like Ace Ventura, and it was right, about... Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is it was about the computer age gone insane. and, 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 and It's it not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. And, and he kind of predicts a lot of what happened. He talks about connecting your phone, your television, and your computer, and it's like someone losing their mind with their obsession with all of that. So I always thought, I think I'm pretty good at this, but I don't know if I'll ever reach... A mass audience. I don't know if I'll ever be successful, but hopefully I'll just be allowed to make things. And I, maybe that'll be the bar. I just keep slipping things in without a hit. And then when I finally did have a hit when Anchorman came out and then The 40-Year-Old Virgin, I really had spent, you know, a decade being humbled <laughs> right. by the amount of people watching what I was doing. And, you know, being canceled hurts, having movies not do all the box office is painful. So when it happened, I appreciated it. But comedy always keeps you humble because one thing working never means the next thing will work. You can't build on it because every project is an experiment. So who knows if train wreck's going to work or the bubble? I have no idea. My movie's going to come out, you know, in the spring. I have no idea how people are going to react to <laughs> it. Right, you know, it's right. a comedy about the pandemic and isolation. I don't know if people are going to go or not go, and so you can't get that cocky about it. You mentioned earlier that your parents had financial difficulties growing up, and you write about it in your book and talk about it in other places. And you've exceeded probably your wildest dreams financially. How have you learned to manage having the resources you never could have dreamed of having when you were a kid? I think I don't really like anything that costs money. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not a you big deal. You don't like a big house? You don't like... I mean, once you get a house, you're almost done. So you, when you see these people that have a lot of money and they want more money, yeah, I'm always like, what even costs money? Like, if you have a house and you could afford to go on vacation, it should be 98% of your life, right? You could pay your bills. You're comfortable with where you are. A couple of times a year, maybe you can go somewhere, and that's it. And then the next step, I guess, if you just need a, a mega yacht, uh, that's a whole nother thing. But I, I've never been a person that needs anything other than 
buy an old playbill on eBay signed by Bert Convy. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing, you know, that I'm into Mm -hmm. that I need that's expensive. I don't like three of Charles Nelson Riley's old uh, turtlenecks. I don't have an expensive interest. You know, I like to maybe go somewhere. So, but as a result of that, like, I don't feel much pressure because it's not like, how will I afford that? Mm-hmm. Because I just don't ever get anything, really, other than, you know, oh, maybe I'll get a massage when I'm on vacation or something. Right. But I'm not doing the big things that people do. So I don't. I, I don't like watches. I don't like cars. I don't. I don't really like anything that's expensive. Yeah. Other than stupid memorabilia that's cheap. Right. Right. <laughs> like I like I went on a, at a charity auction and Steve Martin was selling a lot of his old stuff and he had a puppet that he used to do a magic trick called the great flydini where this like puppet would like come out of his zipper right the so i bought that, that oh, hilarious for charity <laughs> that's, that's that's as wild as it gets i know where you can get a replica of the star trek enterprise <laughs> uh deck of the star trek enterprise i've heard you say on interviews before that it was a struggle for you to buy business class tickets for your children mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you travel, mm-hmm. but that you weren't going to put yourself through the inconvenience of teaching them a financial lesson. Oh, well, I, what I was saying was that I felt bad that maybe if I flew my kids first class, that it would be bad for them that they should be in coach, but I wasn't going to fly coach to teach them values. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have to learn values somewhere else. <laughs> what kind of values do you hope they have around money and class and things like that. I hope that they, you know, appreciate their opportunities and their and their privilege and they work hard to create their own worlds and, you know, to have their own security. They're very sweet and very tuned into that. And I don't know if we did anything correct other than be really cheap their whole lives. <laughs> uh, you know, we talked a lot about it. And it's definitely a blessing to be able to do what you like to do in life and support yourself with it. And I think that's mainly what we talked about, you know, find something that you love. And hopefully if you work really hard and harder than everyone else and, and things time out and you have some luck, you can do that thing for the rest of your life. That's more what we talked about. But again, because our thing is, you know, we're just obsessed with, like, seeing if we can get everyone together for dinner. Right. Our obsession is to not abandon them emotionally. It's not the other stuff. How old are you now? 54. How do you think about the next 20 years of your life? I sometimes think, oh, you should do less, try to be saner. Like, what else would you do with this energy? <laughs> because when you're 54... I'm a person who thinks in terms of time and time hunks. So I could just go like five years and basically 60. <laughs> Three five-year hunks, I'm 70. And then you look at a 70-year-old and you go, how much energy does, do they have? Am I going to be like Keith Richards at almost 80? You know, what, you know, what will I be? And so this moment right now, the next 10 years, is really important. What, what do I want to give it to? Mm-hmm. Does anyone need another movie from me? Do they need a TV show from me? Or is that the thing that makes me happy and the contribution that I make. So I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm certainly thinking about it. Like right now, I could go rush and try to make a movie in the fall. Or I could just say, maybe I'll just think of things I would never do for the rest of the year. 
because I worked hard during the pandemic. I made a George Carlin documentary. I made The Bubble. I wrote a book, Sicker in the Head, Interviews with Comedians. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. And so I can let my mind wander and learn something or, or travel, but there's a little part of me that's like, if you write it right now, you could get it done in three months and be shooting in September. And I enjoy that, and I enjoy the collaboration and the community of that. So sometimes when I think about not working, what I'm really thinking about is no community, mm. and, and I miss that. Mm-hmm. I retired at 42 when after I worked at Facebook, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm done. I've got enough money. I, I don't need to work ever mm-hmm. again. And I had a great three or so months, and then one morning I logged on to my email, and there was nothing there. And I was <laughs> like, who am I? Yeah. What do I do? Where sure. do I fit in the world? And I realized, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy, and it's like physiological needs mm-hmm. on the on the bottom, and then there's belongingness and esteem. And as at the top, there's, you know, self-actualization, which is never attainable, but that's what mm-hmm. we're all working toward. Yep. And I didn't realize how much that belongingness, like the people that I worked with mattered to me. I had no mm. context without that. Yeah. That freaked me out. So I find that, like, who do you want to be around? What kind of community do you want to create? Yeah. Well, that's the hard part about our business because it's circus people. And so, <laughs> you can't you keep the, car, a, you the, yeah. the, the bearded lady. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, you can't keep the community together because the shows get canceled, the movies are done. Right. And as a child of divorce, I think that I invested heavily in the staff and the writers and the actors mm-hmm. and it becomes your family and it becomes your friends but then everyone drifts off and they do other things and the shows end and so in a weird way in trying to keep a community together I've picked a profession where I could relive the divorce like three times a year right <laughs> man and so that I found really heartbreaking yeah. as I get older I realize oh I don't like that and I started doing a lot more stand up because I liked that it was the same people, and part of it was the community of that. Right. But then all the comedians started fighting with each other and, and disagreeing about everything. And the world of comedy now is not as fun and comforting as it was a few years ago because it became very polarized for all sorts of reasons. Why do you think that is? I think that I thought that comedians were, or the world of comedy was like a, an escape from reality where all these like wonderful people were. We all thought alike. And the truth is, it's not different than the country. The divisions are exactly the same in the world of comedy. And the cruelty is exactly the same. And the amount of amazing kind people is exactly the same. But it's not an escape. Is that different than it was 30 years ago? I think it is. I, I do think it is. I mean, the world of comedy is always filled with a lot of great people and smart people and a lot of broken people. Yes. And so they can get, they can tap into what's happening in the world as much as anybody else. And I think the the revelation that some people could be mean has thrown me Mm. because I really thought this is the place, this is my warm bath. And it isn't that, but I think that's really me being naive (laughs) uh, about it and wanting something out of it that was never really fully the case. And you think social media has exacerbated those tendencies? Social media and the same things that are throwing everybody, which is whatever, a pandemic and can you tell me what to do with my body and what am I allowed to say and what are people allowed to do in terms of how they treat women? Like there's a lot of fissures there Mm -hmm. where people have different philosophies about it. And it's all very personal and it brings people's damage to the surface 
how they feel on, on those issues, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's just, it's not the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's not a, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful land. It's just the same as everything else, which is fine. But for me, who needs the escape, that's a hard thing to accept that there would be anyone in our world that we think might be hurtful to somebody. Mm. What do you want to be remembered for? We're not killing you off today, by the way. I'm just curious. You never know. You never would know what the timing's going to be. Any clip can be ironic, right? Like, as they play all the clips of Bob Saget and Louis Anderson, it's oh, like geez. everything Meatloaf. they say breaks your heart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, these are do all you think about musical that? clips. Oh, constantly, constantly. But I'm reading Buddhist material all day long. I can never get something to comfort me enough. My parents weren't religious. They left me with a a hole, and I'm always trying to fill it. And, and Buddhism is as close as I, as I get to it. And I just think my job is in some ways to make people happy. And I try to tune into that. Like, oh, there's a pandemic, and people walk up to me and they say, hey, I watched whatever last night. And you could tell you gave them a break. Yeah. And it's meaningful to them. And in, in its simplest form, oh, I guess that's why I'm, I'm here. I should pay attention to that. I should be grateful to that. Obviously, there's doing it for your ego and to support your family and for fun. But there's another part to it where you go, oh, this is something that I, I do for other people. And I try to be as tuned into that as I, as I can, because that's, I think, the magic of the universe, which is right. why do any of us know how to do this? And so much good comes from it. We remember all the times people didn't laugh or the movies that bombed. But the truth is, right now, there's, you know, whatever, millions of people over the course of the next month or two are going to watch some stupid thing I've worked on. Mm. And they're going to laugh and they're going to feel a little bit better than when they were just uh, watching 90 Day Fiance. I talked to my wife on the way over here and she's like, I just watched This Is 40. And she's mm-hmm. like, it's so funny. At least in a sample size of one, you've, you've done yeah. an excellent job. What did you watch over the pandemic that gave you peace or calmed you down? I'll start. Mine was yeah. the Peter Bogdanovich documentary on Tom Petty, Running Down a Dream. That's a great one. Fantastic. I've, I've gone deep on that, and there's an amazing book about Tom Petty that it was an authorized biography that is worth reading. Because in the documentary about Tom Petty, he doesn't talk about his drug use. <laughs> right. And there's this giant hole in it, which is he's, <laughs> he's lying about the fact right. that a lot of the journey was that he was having real serious problems. Mm-hmm. But it's an incredible documentary. Because it's four hours long. Every second of it makes you happy. It puts you in a mood. It creates a, like its own space. And when I was doing the documentary about Gary Shanling, which is over four hours, I thought about that a lot because they were friends. Mm. But also I thought, well, these great people deserve this time to summarize what they've done. And we just finished uh, George Carlin's documentary, which comes out in May. I can't wait for to see HBO. That. So those things I love. I mean... The Ken Burns Muhammad Ali documentary was incredible. The Ken Burns Hemingway documentary. If you've never read a word of it, you should watch it. It's just an incredible story. But Leslie and I, who normally don't watch a lot of half-hour comedy, for reasons which I'm not sure. (laughs) The the irony there is (laughs) interesting. Uh, We were shooting in England, and we watched Schitt's Creek every night. We hadn't seen almost any of it, and it just put us in such a good mood 
Leslie would always fall asleep before I did. It just like she would go to sleep with that energy, mm. and I think it infected our movie just a spirit of the joy they have working with each other. You could tell they just love each other so much. The people in it, and then we were watching Ted Lasso. That was another one that put us in a good space, and yeah, we weren't watching too many intense things at that time. Because when you work on a movie, you really want to go to sleep. And so you also pick things that put you in the right energy to pass out. Yeah, right. So it almost doesn't matter if you don't finish. It's just Eugene Levy makes me happy, and then I pass out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've made a lot of stuff that's made a lot of people happy, and I am greatly appreciative of you taking the time to do this today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I mean me having you.